the Master Tavern Keeper's History of the Old World. So, is it time? I, for one, wish to hear about the clash between the pariah Jarl, Vegir the Sacrificer, and our very own Tylean explorer extraordinaire, Marco Colombo. Here, here, here. Yeah, yeah, it is time. The set dressing has been put in place. The last sentence of the narration has trailed off into the darkness, and the curtain opens to a hushed crowd. It is time. Marco's ship La Pintolaga hauled anchor and the tropical breeze of the island of Tonda filled her sails, launching her out into the bay. With the removal of the uh, spare cannons, the boat glided quickly over the waves towards the three Norse longships as they cut their way through the waters that lazily lapped the cliffs of Lustria. The wind was with the Tylians, and Marco was sure that they would catch up to the Norsemen quickly. High above, riding the thermals, soared the skink interpreter Huini Pachutli, his pterodon gliding effortlessly in the blue, cloudless sky. He swooped low as he overtook the Tylean vessel before climbing up again and heading towards the three boats belonging to the desecrators of Axolotl. Marco trained his long Arabian telescope on the skink and watched with interest as Huini Pachutti circled the Norse ships three times before directing his mount to fly towards a very tall, pillar-like rocky outcropping that thrust out from the sea further down the coast. Marco saw the uh, flying lizard spread its wings out wide to slow itself down and come to a rest at the zenith of a uh, unassailable skerry. As it perched itself there, he could see the membranes of its wings quivering as it was buffeted by the winds that whipped around the promontory. The skink leapt from its back and moved to the edge of the rocky platform. His uh, usual impenetrable look was uh, upon his face. Marco turned to my grandpapa. It uh, looks uh, like Winnie Pachutli has uh, found himself a fine position to watch the proceedings. You'd have uh, thought that if they were uh, so desperate to get back their stolen uh, treasures, they would uh, lend a hand. But... Apparently not. Honestly, who can fathom the inner workings of such cold-blooded minds? My grandpapa shrugged. To his mind, there were far more pressing concerns at hand. 
They were about to attempt to disable, board, and capture three ships worth of the most ferocious fighters of the old world. Surely the uh, motivations and modus operandi of the uh, lizardmen at this juncture was a topic for contemplation in uh, quieter times. Not now. He didn't voice any of this uh, to Marcos, or his friend's head was uh, in an altogether different space. Zoviso, the Tylean vessel made rapid progress and soon neared cannon range. Even this far away, my grandpapa said he could hear the beating of the Norse drums and their blood-sasty screams and howls over the sound of the undulating waves. It was chilling. Marco again turned to my grandpapa. He had the look of someone in two minds. To shoot or not to shoot, Frederick. That is the question. My grandpapa nodded. They had plenty of cannonballs, but the precious little gunpowder. The mutineer Giovanni and the other deserters had taken most of it. The Tylian ship had perhaps enough for uh, three full broadsides. After that, they would be vulnerable. Suddenly, before a decision could be reached, the two smaller boats, the um, uh, wolf ships, I think you mean. Ah, yeah, yeah, thank you. The two uh, wolf ships turned from their course and began to head directly towards the uh, Pinto Laga, leaving the uh, larger vessel, the uh, kingship. Ah, yeah, yeah, uh, leaving the uh, kingship, the flagship of Vigil the Sacrificer himself, to uh, continue up the coast unmolested. It was now obvious that the lizardmen treasures and artifacts Marco sought were all on the main ship, and the smaller ships were to be uh, sacrifices to waylay the Tylean. Vegir wasn't called the Sacrificer for nothing, don't you know? Ah, well, indeed. And the followers of Karnath oft say that their god cares not from whence the blood flows, be it friend or foe. Only that it flows. Ah, yeah, yeah, I believe it. As the uh, Bretonians say, we men are not but uh, morsels upon the dinner table of the gods. Many are hors d'oeuvres. Others are a main course. But some are merely scraps for the dogs beneath. The crews of the two wolf ships were certainly the latter. Marco countered the Norsemen's move by ordering his vessel to bear to starboard so as to become parallel with Vegir's ship. The lightweight Tylean boat thus moved away from the pass of the oncoming wolf ships, firing off a couple of cannonballs as they went. Alas, they missed. But the manoeuvre provoked the two wolf ships into deviating from their line of pursuit, and as a result, they found themselves chasing after the quicker Pinto Laga rather than intercepting it. This allowed Marco's ship to slowly edge ever nearer to the kingship, 
with the Italians were now caught between two deadly prongs. Wood ships to the rear, a kingship to the fore, they were stuck in the middle of the two. And if they slowed from their current speed even a jot, then they would certainly be caught by their pursuers. Marco's plan was to go for the lead boat, board it, subjugate its crew whilst using his own ship to fend off the other two vessels. Mm, but uh, it was not a good plan, to be honest. It highly underestimated the fighting prowess of the Norse and overestimated the skills of his own troops. The thing that the Italians did have going for them, though, was their long-range capabilities. Their boat had its cannons, and also every member of the crew had been training day in and day out with their crossbows ever since the mutiny. Marco was gambling everything on this advantage. The winds began to pick up as they neared the skerry upon which Huini Pachutli was perched. By this point, the Pintolaga had almost caught up with the kingship. Marco pulled out his telescope and peered through the sea spray towards the enemy boat. Despite the conditions, he could clearly make out the form of an armoured Norseman raised high above the deck. He was sat upon a throne of skulls and flanked by a cohort of heavily armoured huskarls. The Jarl's bondsmen filled the lower deck, and their foul war cries echoed over the sound of the sea as they beat their weapons against their shields in time with the ship's drum. Realization suddenly dawned on Marco. Frederick, Frederick, I know this man. We are in a trouble. This is no mere yard. We are about to attack Vegira the Sacrificer. At this statement, my grandpapa almost choked on the gold of lizardman vines that he was drinking. I am sure of it. Look, look for yourself. My grandpapa grabbed Marco's long Arabian telescope and trained it on the boat's leader. His heart sank. It was indeed the infamous Norse Jarl. Vegir had been well known amongst those that had ploughed the waves of the Sea of Claws during the uh, 1480s, which both uh, Marco and my grandpapa had certainly done. Both were well aware of his reputation. Posters depicting Vegir had been nailed to the notice boards of every coastal town square of Nordland and Ostland during his heyday, and I doubt there is a single sailor on the Sea of Claws at that time who couldn't identify the champion of chaos. Urgency, and uh, perhaps even a splash of fear, washed over Marco. He immediately ordered his gunnery sergeant to launch a broadside at the Norse ship. But it overshot and the cannonballs crashed into the cliffs behind, causing large chunks of rock to break free and tumble into the waters below. Again. And the gunnery sergeant ordered the cannons to shoot once more. And again, 
The cannons miss their target. Their shouts crashing into the rocks behind, causing yet more chunks to break free from the cliffs and churn up the sea below, directly to the port side of the north vessel. Shoot again! This was the last of their gunpowder. The broadside flew through the salty air towards Vegir's kingship. A single cannonball shredded the fearsome animal carving adorning the prow, leaving only a bird's nest of splintered wood behind. Another crashed into Vegir's throne of skulls, causing it to explode in all directions, spraying the entire crew in bone-shard shrapnel. It also sent the throne's occupant spinning into the air, a streak of blood spraying out from behind him. And finally, a third cannonball achieved the ultimate aim of all three fusillades. It cleft the mast in two. The thick wood crashed down with a creak and a crack, crushing a number of sailors and knocking yet more from the ship whilst simultaneously pinning a swathe of the bondsman beneath its great sail. This was exactly what Marco had hoped for. He did not want to sink the boat, for that risked losing the uh, precious lizardman artefacts beneath the waves, so his only real recourse was to disable the vessel from afar and then pounce upon their wounded prey. Next, though, came the more difficult part. With the main vessel disabled, the Tylians intended to board her and overcome the crew, but the two pursuing wolf ships were breathing down their necks, and if they slackened their pace to uh, board the disabled ship, then they would in turn almost immediately be caught and boarded themselves by two full crews of Norsemen. This was surely a death sentence. Marco hesitated. He had the riches of the lizard men in one hand and the lives of his men in the other, but he could only have one of them. Suddenly, as indecision gripped him, something caught his eye high above. From the rocky promontory upon which Huini Pachutli's pterodon was perched, he saw this king priest was aglow, a nimbus of preternatural light seeming to emanate from the interpreter. He shook his head before once more whipping out his telescope and training it onto his cold-blooded ally. His eyes did not deceive him, though. Magical energy danced around the skink as he raised his bronze serpent staff to the heavens. Suddenly, high above, a tiny orange sphere seemed to shift into existence. It grew larger and larger by the second. Marco pointed and all eyes looked up to the sky. As they watched, each could make out swirls of fire trailing off from the object as if it was some sort of giant ball of fire. A ball of fire that had seemingly been summoned by the skink and was silently falling from the sky 
towards them. My grandpapa quickly took a moment to take in his surroundings. The detabled ship of Vigil the Sacrificer drifted in the waters between the skerry from which Huini Pachutli was casting his magics and the cliff face of the Lustrian coast. Their Tylian ship had pulled ahead of the kingship by now, and if they wished to board the North vessel, they would need to hoist their sails and double back. And finally, behind the damaged longship, the two full ships came roaring through the roiling waves, eager to sink their teeth into Marco's boat. My grandpapa then returned his gaze to the plummeting fireball. It had now grown so large that it blotted out the sky. Suddenly, there was a yawning silence. My grandpapa said it must have lasted less time than it took to take a breath, but it felt like an eternity. The atmosphere became stifling and an immense pressure squeezed the very air. All anyone could see was shadow and fire as the heavenly object, a comet no less, struck the ocean. And like the popping of a cork, the seas around them erupted in a scalding explosion of meteoric rock, vaporizing the seawater and turning the world into a floating cacophony of whiteness.